can't get enough of football? Chance, goal, superhuman, special, special goal. Incredible, just incredible. Now you can get the inside look. Welcome to Football Insiders, your home for informed, insightful and independent opinion, news and talk on football from the team behind Fair Play Publishing and the Football Writers Festival. Oh, what an introduction! Welcome to another Football Insiders, the podcast home for Fair Play Publishing and the Football Writers Festival. For those who missed us last week, we're back on track with our weekly schedule. In case this is the first time you've caught us, we've previously spoken with authors Trevor Thompson, Jason Goldsmith, Andrew Howe, Texie Smith, Peter Kunz and Professor John Maynard, as well as Fox Sports commentator Simon Hill and an ultimate insider, Archie Fraser. Today, it's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Jorge Kinyik, who is an Associate Professor in the School of Education and the Institute for Culture and Society at Western Sydney University, as well as a lifelong football fan, player, coach, and I think even a referee. I'm not sure about that one. Jorge comes from the home of the beautiful game, Brazil. His book that Fair Play Publishing published in 2018 is a wonderful read about the social, cultural, economic and political impact of the 2014 World Cup on the people of Brazil, entitled The World Cup Chronicles, 31 Days That Rocked Brazil. As is always the case when the circus of a World Cup or an Olympics is in your country or your home city, people tend to forget the downside of hosting a mega event. Georgie's book is such a wonderful read because it does both. It looks at what was the good aspects of it as well as the downside and weaves that in with issues around the Brazilian football team and Brazilian football more broadly, as well as what was going on at the time, and we also tend to forget this, FIFA politics. So please grab a coffee and have a listen as we chat to Jorge Kinyik. Jorge, welcome. Hello, thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. First of all, before we get started, how are you coping we're now the stage where we're opening up a little but certainly universities there's been a big impact on universities because of COVID-19 how are you dealing with that? Uh, Yeah it's been a huge impact we moved to everything online we've been working from home since the beginning teaching from home it's very tiring but it's been positive because we could keep the students engaged both undergraduate post graduate students, also HDR candidates. It's very tiring working, doing Zoom meetings. <laughs> it, prolongs, it prolongs your working day a lot, but it's been positive. On the other side, there is this negative. There is a huge financial impact in the universities, which I think are the third sector in Australian economy. And so far, the federal government hasn't Help hasn't helped this sector, so it's a huge crisis. Jobs, lots, thousands of jobs have been threatened. So this is a a worry for everyone, and most of all for casual colleagues who are the most vulnerable people at the moment. So this is the downside of the thing, of course. Yes, yeah, I mean, and that's one of the issues with the academic world at the moment. There's so many people working in it, whereas once upon a time it used to be lifelong tenure. There's so many now who are casuals and, you know, very able, very highly qualified people who do not have permanent employment, which is a great pity. It'll be interesting to see whether the government moves on that at all. Exactly, exactly, yeah. We've been expecting that nothing happened. They changed the rules, so I think universities cannot apply for JobKeeper. 
grants, so it's very hard at the moment. So they miss a lot in international students, and there is lots of things happening in the background, in the in, in behind the scenes that we don't know in terms of trying to bring back the international students. My university, particularly Western Sydney University, they try to do their best in terms of everybody, the staff, the senior management, and all the staff trying to help the students with the students' fund, putting funds and money and vouchers for them at least to, to eat, yeah, and try to also to help them with accommodation. And I think international international students, international parents, they saw this move as our goodwill to help these students during this, this crisis, which hopefully we'll see them coming back soon. Yes. Hopefully for everybody in the economy and everybody that it all starts to get on the upside as we've been talking. Let's get into your book. And one of the things I should also mention for those of those people who haven't see, even seen your book is as well as the book itself, which is a great read, it's also a beautiful read. It's got some wonderful photographs in it, all of which were taken by women photographers, local women photographers in Brazil. And for no other reason, if, if you're not a reader, it's worth getting just to look at the photos. But of course, it is worth reading as well. I think one of the first ones we're going to, you know, when you think of Brazil nowadays, you think of a, a handful of very high profile players and the most high profile at the moment is Neymar. Do you think he is an asset or a burden for the national team? Well, Neymar is controversial in Brazil, for example. Just two days ago, there was this, of course, everybody talking about racism because of issues in the US, but also in Brazil, there are killings of black people who are not. It became like a, a regular thing, maybe two or two weeks ago in a favela, there was this boy inside his home. He's been killed by police who just invaded and raided his place. And then a high-profile YouTuber, someone called Filippi, who has like 40 million followers, he posted something about Neymar. So Neymar should go and fight racist. Then Neymar did something. But everything around Neymar is always commodified. So he uses his profiles and even when he posts something that should have a social meaning, there is a corporate commercial campaign with him. So that's the issue with Neymar. Everything that he brings to the Seleção, to the Brazilian national team, is also really commodified. So it's very hard to separate the footballer. Many times he comes to the hotels, the five-star hotels where the team is and all his entourage and his father who controls everything comes together and that disturbs the atmosphere a lot. So when Neymar, and I think that's clear, when he concentrates in his game, he's great. But there is too much to disturb and to make him not to focus on his game. And that's the, the issue with Neymar. But it's kind of impossible to see any coach not calling him to the team because he's he's the star. Yeah, I guess we tend to get that just with a with a handful of players where they are superstars, but that do have these entourages that sort of follow them around and are part and parcel of, of what we get with them. It's a difficult one because some of these young people, you know, Neymar's an example. They leave their country, they go off to another country, they're earning huge money at a very young age. 
Um, you can also understand as a parent that even a normal parent would want to have some sort of, I guess, management of that situation or certainly overseeing of that situation for their child. You know, you almost get to the point where that may be a different situation with Neymar and his father, but you'd almost get to the point as a parent where you think, well, this child is now no longer a child but an adult, and so they have to get on with their lives and make their own decisions. No, you are right. Neymar is not that young anymore. He's 28. But the thing is that Neymar Sr., yeah, he's dead. He controls Neymar's business. He's at the top. So he's manager. He controls all the propaganda, the advertising, all the Neymar corporation, as we could, as we could say. And he interferes in everything. So it's a family thing. And he's very powerful. As people say, he confronts the presidents of the confederation, the coaches, so nobody can stay in his way. So this, I think this damages the team a lot because, well, other players also, if you remember in the 2014 campaign when Neymar got injured, they were hanging Neymar's jersey to show that he was there instead of supporting someone who was replacing him. I mean, everybody got injured. That happens in football. Could be Neymar, but could be anyone else. So the one who is injured is out. So we need to support the ones who are playing. And they were thinking on Neymar. So Neymar, it's this type of shadow over the team as well. And many times, as in the 2018 World Cup in Russia, he attracts lots of negativity because of the way people say he dives. I don't agree. In particular, I don't agree. I think that's his way. But referees and all the international media and supporters, they think he dives and that attracts lots of negativity to the team as well. So because he got caught and yellow cards and all these things and everybody gets anxious on the field. So it's very hard. It's a balance. I mean, he will stay in the team, but we'll have to move when he stops playing. That's the thing for the team. Well, at 28, he's potentially got another two World Cups. I mean, he yeah. could well still be playing in 2026 yeah. when he'll be 34. Yeah, it'll be fascinating. One of the things, of course, that earmarks Brazil from a lot of other teams and especially sort of, you know, second world or maybe third world football countries like Australia is uh, the nationality of the coach. Would Brazilians ever accept a coach who wasn't Brazilian? I think that's a great topic. We never had one. Yeah, but there were plenty of talks. At the moment, there is this Portuguese coach at Flamengo who won the Libertadores da America, the South American champions, Cup, Jorge Jesus. And he, he's from Portugal. And there is talks about him coming and taking over the national team. I think things changed. If you asked me this maybe 20 years ago, I would say definitely not. But at the moment, with all this crisis and in football and as the team is not playing as Brazilians want, I think this could be something achievable, mostly because maybe with Jorge Jesus, who has already achieved huge success in Brazilian football in such a short time frame, he won the the national championship, the Brasileirão, and also the Libertadores with Flamengo, which is the most popular team. So he's already accepted by 
what 50 million people, 50 million supporters of Flamengo and the whole press, they are in love with him saying that he plays offensive football and everybody enjoys the way his team plays, so maybe. And as a Portuguese speaker also, maybe he, he could be someone that the Brazilians would accept. There were talks about Guardiola coming for, for the 2014 World Cup, but of course this didn't eventuate. But maybe someone like Jorge Jesus, São Paulo is also working in Brazilian football. He worked last year in Santos and he, they did well and they played well. So everybody was talking a bit about São Paulo, but maybe someone who is Portuguese speaker like Jorge Jesus and had success already in Brazil could be someone more acceptable by the Brazilians in general. That's the Brazilian people, the Brazilian fans. But what about in terms of the Brazilian Football Federation, the CBF? And, you know, this, as you and I have talked privately before, the CBF has been almost the epicentre of football corruption <laughs> in the world. And, and certainly with Havalanche there many, many years ago, it basically kicked off football corruption. Has that changed at all? And is football still as relevant to Brazilian people as it used to be? Or is there, you know, but prior to 2014, and particularly in the Confederations Cup, we saw a lot of protests and that sort of thing, not just about what the Brazilian government was spending money on to get ready for the World Cup and the Olympics, but also they were very conscious of what was going on in terms of corruption with football. Has that shifted at all? Has it got better? Has it got worse? Or what is the status quo in that? Well, in my book, The World Cup Chronicles, I have a few chapters on this issue. I mean, as you know, I divided the, the chapter in before, during, and after the World Cup. And even in each section, there is one or more chapters talking about corruption, talking about dirty politics within Brazilian football. They always happen, of course, with Avelange and Ricardo Teixeira and the others, and Marin, who is now in, in jail. Yeah, that increased a lot. For example, I have a, a, a chapter where I talk about Dunga, who was Brazilian coach, and Chichi, who is the current coach, and I ask whether the selection worth the devil's kiss. For example, Chichi was a great critic of the federation and all this, this corruption, but then he accepted the coach position, and when he accepted, he had to, to give a kiss in Marco Polo Del Nero, yeah, you know, when they were in, in the press conference talking about he was coming to the position. And of course, now he cannot talk about all this corruption. But in terms of relevance, it's hard for people who are not there to see this. But even with all these critics and the corruption and the overpaid stadia, that means a lot for Brazilian football. New stadium in Brazilian Northeast, it's really relevant. I mean, every week there is a football party and the regular, the average audience is 70,000 people in the stadium. So it's crazy. I mean, if, you, if you're talking about Australia, when they struggle to get 6,000 people for a regular match, I'm not talking about a big final match. I'm talking about a regular state championship. 
in Ceará, for example, where there was a new stadium, which is great. Of course, there were places like Manaus, like Cuiabá, where there is no football, so we didn't need new stadium, and this was evidence. They are just white elephants, and this is evidence of corruption. But in some other places, like Ceará, Pernambuco, the game is, and even, of course, in the big in the big centers in the south, like São Paulo, Rio de Janeiro, Porto Alegre, the game is well and alive. When we say the game, of course, it's the men's game. It's well and alive. Not now, of course, it's stopped and it's in crisis as everything it is because of COVID-19. But the game is well and alive. Even when Flamengo, who won the Libertadores, they lost against Liverpool. But it wasn't easy for Liverpool in the club's World Cup. At the end of the year, at the end of last year, I think Liverpool won just one year. It was hard. I mean, Flamengo could put some game, could play against Liverpool, even if, of course, their financial endorsements are much bigger and European football is the center of football at the moment. Very hard for South America to beat anyone, but it was kind of great. And at the moment, as football has stopped, the major broadcasters, the major TV channels like TV Globo, who are also involved in football corruption. They've been broadcasting. Even the, the 2014 defeat against Germany, yeah, the seven, the famous. <laughs> They've dared to play that again. Yeah, and huge audience. And people still talk about the game, talking about the tactical issues. Something that I wrote in my book also, how the coach at World Cup, Filippão, had no idea about tactics. He thought he would win the World Cup just by using his family style, putting together a group who were friends. But he had no idea about how to interpret the, the other team's strategies on the field. That's why we lost. And that was the big shame for Brazilian team. But I think despite all the issues, it's, it's still alive and relevant. It's not as it was because Brazil is now a much larger country, 200 and plus million people. So there are plenty of other issues. But just to give you an example on how it's relevant, of course, everybody now is trying to be at home. The, pand the, the COVID-19 pandemic is killing thousands of people in Brazil. And the, the guy who is at the top can't even say his name, but I have to. Bolsonaro denies everything is not helping. So there are, people know that Brazil is the epicenter of the COVID-19 crisis and nobody can resist. But people are just so desperate that what happened last weekend was that the active supporters for Corinthians, for Sao Paulo, Palmeiras, they went to the streets, even with all the social isolation to protest against Bolsonaro. And Bolsonaro is afraid of them. There are more demonstrations called, people are just desperate. They say, well, what's the point of staying at home and being hungry? And you know, we are poor, we, we can't social isolate. So the football supporters are going to the streets to, to demonstrate against Bolsonaro and his lack of policies. That's fascinating. I was going to ask you about how you feel as a Brazilian being you know, half a world away in Australia, watching what's happening in your country and with Bolsonaro. But it's fascinating to hear that 
football supporters are getting together and protesting against the government, which, of course, is what happened in 2013 and 2014 as well. And it perhaps shows just how well organised they can be when they are united in one cause. Yeah, football is entrenched in Brazilian history, culture, and, of course, politics. I mean, these guys, they started by just coming together and to raise food and, and support people who were struggling in favelas during the, the COVID crisis. But then they realized that, well, the political parties, nobody's doing anything against Bolsonaro. He's reigning, he's just destroying Brazilian health system and Brazilian republic. So they just said enough is enough and they went to the street. And it was kind of interesting because they marched against Bolsonaro instead of staying stopped and just listening to someone. They were singing. Yeah, they were just adjusting their songs to make up instead of supporting a team. It was songs against Bolsonaro and his policies and denouncing what he's doing. And then they marched over one of the most important streets in Sao Paulo, which is the Paulista Avenue, where all demonstrators are. And as they're every day that it's being supporters, Bolsonaro supporters there, they marched against them. Well, that's fascinating. I'm sure that's something that most of us here have learned in listening to you now. You mentioned a little while back it's a man's game in Brazil and yet Brazil is responsible for a number of terrific women players and probably, if not the best woman player in the world, certainly one of the best women players in the world. She has won the Ballon d'Or five times and that's Marta, of course, you have a whole chapter in your book that is devoted to Marta and the fact that Marta is better than Pele. Would you like to talk about that and also just comment on the fact, one of the things that we hear a lot through COVID-19, and I don't agree with this in relation to Australia or Europe, but is that women's sport is going to suffer as a result of some of the cuts that are going to be happening in sport. Do you think that's going to be the case in Brazil? Well, this has already happened in a few teams, in a few clubs. Some female players have been denied of their wages in a few, like Atletico Mineiro and two or three other clubs that happened uh, for female players. And, of course, a few people are protesting. Just an Amanda Marta won six times the Ballon d'Or. Six, sorry. Yes, you're right, she did. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> no, that's all right. Well, one thing that I, I like to talk about when you say that I, I have this chapter, it's a provocation. Of course, Marta is better than Pelé. Just because, of course, her individual achievements, six times winner of the Ballon d'Or, but also because of the challenges that she faced as a woman playing the men's game. So I think that makes a lot for her. And there is some acknowledgement. It's interesting to see during the Olympics, for example, there were no Marta jerseys. What people did, they bought a Neymar jersey and they put a sticker with Marta's name over Neymar's name. And my book, from the cover, yeah, my book has a woman, a Brazilian woman playing football. And a few months ago, I received a message from someone saying, oh, this is the first international book on Brazilian football that has a woman on the cover actually playing football, not as a model or something like that. 
So it's still plenty of barriers for women to play football in Brazil. The Seleção, the, the Brazilian Confederation, got something better now. They they hired the Swedish woman, I forgot her name, P, Pia, maybe? Pia, Pia, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so she's the current coach and a former student of mine. She's her assistant coach. So they got new coaches for the team. The team is getting more more structure. The, the league is still failing. Teams come and go. It's not a huge, relevant league, but it's getting better. Which is something that I observe a lot is that on the ground, there is plenty of things happening. More girls coming and fighting for their space. If you look like 20 years ago, if you went to a school, every single school in Brazil has a futsal court. Yeah, there is a court, but it's a futsal court mainly. Of course, you can play other sports. But during lunch break, during recess, five out of five days of the week were dominated by boys. Now the girls are coming there and trying to play more football. So I think there is, which is important, some cultural change, more people supporting and wanting to see women's matches as well. So the change is low, but it's happening, which is good. It is. That's very encouraging, actually, especially, you know, based on some of the, one, some of the things that you had to write about, but also you'll recall at last year's Football Writers Festival, we met Gwendolyn Oxenham. And she wrote that book under the lights or under the dark and under the lights or something. And she played professionally in Brazil for a year or two. And she remember she talked about how playing in the professional level in Brazil, women's league at the time, they didn't have change rooms. They had to get changed in the car. They didn't have lights for training. So it's encouraging to hear that things are changing, even if slowly. Yeah, I remember she even, she even said on that day in the Jamburu in the footballs festival, they, they were training with horses. That's right. Yeah. Where the horses were. <laughs> <laughs> so it was appalling, yeah. Yeah, it was appalling. Jorge, we're at the end of our time for today's podcast, but I'm going to finish by asking something that I've been asking everyone, and we're putting together a Football Insiders musical playlist. So what's a piece of music that you're listening to at the moment and that we can just close our show with this week? Well, this needs to be in English. No, no, it can be anything. I'm, I'm sure we'd love some Brazilian music or Latin music. Yeah, I, I always listen to to Brazilian music. They are they are my favorites, and I listen to Chico Cesar. Chico Cesar is one of the current greatest Brazilian singers. We'll find something. We'll dig deep into the vault <laughs> and find something from Chico Cesar. Thank you again, Georgie, for your time. And it's always a pleasure to talk to you. And we appreciate you taking time out of your busy teaching and research schedule to have a chat with us today. No, it's my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for Fair Play Publishing for promoting our work as well. Thanks a lot. Thank you. And that's it for Football Insiders this week with Georgie Kinyik. If you want to catch up on your football reading, there's no better time to do so. Head to fairplaypublishing.com.au where there are not only a range of books on football history, culture, biographies, fiction and memoir, including Georgie's, but the back 
catalogue of the Football Insiders podcast, as well as our Play On magazine, which is also available on the App Store. In the meantime, please stay safe and maintain your social distance. We're going to close with a brief excerpt from Georges' Choice of Music by Chico Cesar called Pedrada, which is a song against fascism very telling at the moment. We'll be back next week with another Football Insiders podcast. In the meantime, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Football Insiders from the team behind Fair Play Publishing, home of the Football Writers Festival. Be the first to get inside access by subscribing. And to get more, head to fairplaypublishing.com.au.